0: Good morning, uh, I, will, I will confess uh, to you that I'm grateful that I have a microphone that works today. <laughs> um, when I was here uh, last year, um, I decided, we decided that nonetheless, electricity or not, I would preach. And I was struck as I flew home the next day Uh, at how therapeutic it was to yell at a group of Christians. (laughs) For the span of 30 minutes, uh, I had been coming out of a season of just feeling some frustration towards the church, and it was just really nice to yell at you. Um, But in reality, thank you for putting up last year with my repressed Freudian anger. I'm grateful today that I, I don't need to yell at you. This morning... I would like to talk about the importance of being childlike. A number of years ago, I was teaching a graduate-level course at a university, a theology course, which is my domain. And uh, I'm a Pentecostal. Uh, I've jokingly said that we are the adrenal gland of the body of Christ, Uh, (laughs) the the excited ones. And you're you're sort of, I know, as as Wesleyans, you're you're close. You'll, we'll, get, we'll get you there. Um, but I was teaching a graduate course at a, at a, a, at a seminary. And uh, I was, for one week, with a group of graduate students. It was a really remarkable week, actually. And uh, after the course was finished, uh, this student, uh, one of our Hispanic students that was in the course, uh, uh, came up to me after the class, and he, in kind of vintage Pentecostal style, uh, had a word from the Lord for me. Uh, When you're a Pentecostal, you have to learn very quickly skill set around discernment. What is of the Lord, what is not of the Lord? And I knew some good questions to ask, and I said, well, I'd love to hear this prophetic word that you have for me. And this very humble uh, Hispanic pastor said to me in very broken English, He said, I feel, Dr. Swoboda, that Jesus wants you to know that you are, quote, a low-level theologian. (laughs) And in good Pentecostal fashion, I put on a mask and said thank you for offering me in boldness what you think Jesus was saying to me. That evening, I went back to my hotel room, and if I'm candid, I was mad. Who are you To tell me that I'm a low-level theologian? I have worked so hard for my PhD I owe these institutions money. (laughs) I have papers. And to have you call me a low-level theologian. And for some odd reason, this prophetic word, I couldn't shake out of my head. And it, it offended me. I was angry about it. And nearly two weeks later, I couldn't stop thinking about it. And one evening, I woke up in the middle of the night And it dawned on me that it was Jesus speaking to me. I am a low-level theologian. My calling as a Christian has been not to serve academics. In fact, I've learned over time that my primary calling is not to support, or or I shouldn't say support, but to present at SBL or AAR or go to the local academic uh, uh, breakout sessions. For some odd reason, that has never been my calling. My calling has always been to serve the local church with good theology. And it dawned on me that it's accurate. I am a low level theologian. What strikes me about that story is that I was offended to be considered lowly, that it is an offense in many of our professions to be considered low, to be someone low to the ground. This sense of offense that I'm not low, I'm making it. Our reading today, Jesus gathers some little children to himself. He lays his hands on them, and of course the disciples rebuke the children for coming to Jesus. "'Let the little children come to me,' Jesus says. "'Don't hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven "'belongs to such as these.' When he placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Of course, this is not the only time in Matthew's gospel where Jesus talks about kiddos. In Matthew 18, our chapter before this, Jesus as well makes a comment as the disciples come to Jesus, asking who's the greatest. At that time, Matthew 18, 1, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a little child to him and placed the child among them, and he said, Truly, truly, I tell you, amen, amen. Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom. Whoever welcomes one such as this in my name welcomes I want us for a moment uh, to just reflect on Jesus' words on childlikeness. Jesus invites us to three things. First, Jesus invites you and I on our path to become deep thinkers, theologians, Bible scholars, pastors, leaders, nonprofit executives, missionaries. Jesus invites us first to become like a child. Of course, in the ancient world, it was not a good gig to be a kid. Uh, In the ancient world, half of children would be uh, able to live essentially up to their fifth birthday, and beyond that, most of them, uh, more often than not, less than half would live past their fifth birthday. Uh, In fact, many Jews would actually not name their child until after a week uh, on the chance that likely the child would pass away. Less than 40% who were born would live to 20. And still at the same time, at that moment in time, children uh, had a, a rough go. Children were also wildly disrespected, seen essentially as sort of social lepers, the lowest of the status realm. They were seen as, for all intents and purposes, they were seen as nobodies. You know, I'm not convinced that we have improved all that much. I find it very odd at our own moment in time when we talk about children and we're describing our least favorite politician or our least favorite theologian or our least favorite person on Twitter. I find it weird that we always describe them as acting like children. It's a bad comparison. Children are awesome. And to compare our least favorite people to acting like children, put yourself in the shoes of a child to hear that. A recent study, unfortunately, has shown that two out of three 13-year-old girls have considered not wanting to live anymore because of their addiction to TikTok. Social media is destroying, in many ways, the hearts and minds of young people who have been robbed, by the way, of their obscurity. As Andy Crouch points out in one of his very important lectures, often children are the ones that pay the biggest price for the sins of the adult. We tend, by almost a rule of nature, to have a deep impact on kids through our own unlived lives. In fact, it was Jung who said, the greatest the greatest threat to the child is the unlived life of the parent. His point being this, that whatever we have not worked out ourselves will tend to have a disproportionate effect on the children among us. I can't tell you the number of times I've spoken to a PK who can't stand the church. I live in the Pacific Northwest. Many people can't stand the church out there. But there is a generation of PKs that hate the church because they see the church as having stolen their parents from them. We say as a church that we do not believe in child sacrifice. Often we build our denominations on it. I had one PK say to me that the hardest part of being a PK was that as a child, they were always the illustration. They would walk into the room and everybody had just heard something about them that they themselves had not given permission to share. They were a walking illustration. In fact, many of the early mystics, uh, that, uh, female specifically mystics in the early church, in the medieval church, discussed how when they were kids they experienced Jesus but they had to keep it quiet because they knew if they shared anything they'd be locked up we call them the next generation they're not the next generation they are the generation they're here now and so the negative pejorative view that the ancient world took towards children I fear we just haven't progressed from that how does Jesus respond to this Well, the first thing I notice is that Jesus relativizes adulthood. And by that I mean, Jesus goes out of his way to say, adulthood is not what you think it is. In fact, in Matthew chapter 19, you may have noticed, as Jesus has children brought to him by presumably the parents, he, before this passage, mentions the eunuchs, this passage where he mentions three different kinds of eunuchs, those who are born eunuchs, Those who were made eunuchs and those who chose to be eunuchs, all for one for the kingdom of God. He makes a comment of these eunuchs, these people who can't have kids, and then the next story is the story of those who have brought their kids to Jesus. Interesting. It is almost as though Jesus is saying the role of a good parent is similar to the role of a eunuch. To treat the child not as only yours, but ultimately it is God's child. So much to say that even as a father i have to recognize as much as i love my 12 year old boy god is highly more invested in his formation process than i am a very important moment for a father whose dad started middle whose son started middle school last week i as the parent in that story get to bear my child to jesus and put him in the lap of jesus similar to the eunuch who gets to bear their sexuality to God. We all get to bring our most important things to a gracious God. Jesus would even go out of his way to say things like this, if you love your children more than you love me, you are not worthy of the kingdom of heaven. These are not family-friendly comments. I couldn't imagine this being on a local program, of uh, some some family-friendly program of how to have a, how, how do you make sense of this? If you love your child, your spouse, your brother, your sister more than me, you are not worthy of the kingdom of God. I think what Jesus is doing here is he is confronting our understanding of adulthood. Fabulous little book by Mary Stewart Van Leeuwen, her book, Gender and Grace. She makes a comment. Jesus does not disparage relationships. He affirms the created socialness of persons and he uses homely illustrations from family and village life in his parables. He affirms parenthood as an important calling for both men and women and a role that deserves respect from children. But he does not allow those roles to take precedence over the kingdom of God. He does not allow them to be idolized. There's a lot of rhetorical moves right now that go something like this. What will the history books say about you? I want to say, well I'm not going to be in them so I don't know. But an even more powerful one is what will your kids say about you? And I want to say I love what my son thinks but at the end of the day, my son is not the final judge. I stand before Jesus. And so Jesus confronts our idolization of the child. And so his way is, the up is down. For C.S. Lewis, who wrote thousands of letters to children, he once said, God wants us to have a child's heart and a grown-up head. Jesus' invitation to Peter after denying him three times was, in your early years, you went where you wanted to go. But in your later years... Someone else will dress you and you will go where you do not want to go. Henry Nouwen famously called this downward mobility. In his book, The Selfless Way of Christ, we are taught to conceive of a development in terms of an ongoing increase in human potential. Growing up means becoming healthier, stronger, more intelligent, more mature, and more productive. Consequently, we hide those who do not affirm this myth of progress such as the elderly, the prisoner, and those with mental disabilities. And in our society, we consider the upward move the obvious one while treating the poor cases who cannot keep up as sad misfits, people who have deviated from the normal line of progress. As a guy who's beginning to do his swan dive into a midlife crisis, I am finding that the older that I get, the less rights I get to live into the more I am submitted to Jesus. The closer I get to social security, the more and more I find myself wrapped up in wanting to do what God says and not what I say. Friend, Jesus invites you to crucify the idea that it's all up and to the right. Become a child. Jesus also says, take a child's position. He puts a child in their midst, and then he, 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 he raises them. And in fact, one can only imagine that the child is sitting as the disciples are on the ground. He takes them, and he has them stand above them. Imagine being in that position of having the lowly now be higher than you. It's fascinating the way the story contrasts why the disciples and why the children come to Jesus. The disciples come to Jesus because they want more power. Who is the greatest Jesus? This is, by the way, one of the greatest arguments for why the Gospels have to be historically accurate. These just don't make the disciples look good. And they wrote this stuff. They are coming for power, the greatness, but look at the children. They are completely silent in this text. Not one of their words is recorded. The words of the disciples are recorded, but not the words of the children. That's interesting to me. As far as I can tell, and I know we've got some Bible nerds in the room, I can only find two places in the entire gospel stories where the words of children are recorded. Number one is when Jesus is a teenager in Luke chapter 2. When he gets lost in the temple for three days and his parents come and find him. By the way, not the last time in the gospels, Jesus will be lost for three days. The premonitions just bounce off the wall. And his mom and dad come up to him, and and Jesus says, why are you searching for me? Why do you think you're our child? The words of Jesus as a child. Why are you looking for me? And the only other time that I can find in the Gospels where the words of a child are recorded are in Matthew 21 when Jesus enters the temple, overturns the money tables, and the children are shouting, Hosanna, the Son, in the highest. It's interesting to me because one of the recorded statements is that the child is God and the other one is the children are worshiping God. There are no other references to the words of children in the Gospels. And I can't help but suggest to you, I think that that is a gift for a moment in time. We live in a world where we hand our children iPhones, on average, the age of 13. We are robbing our children of obscurity. We are throwing kids into a world without them having the formative years of, in the case of Jesus, 30 years. We know almost nothing from 30 years of Jesus' life. Com- near complete obscurity. And one of the stories is when he's a teenager. Whenever I teach uh, at a middle school camp, which doesn't happen as much as it used to, but that's one of my favorite aspects of the incarnation. Name one other God that knows what puberty is like. (laughs) That'll preach to a middle schooler. But for 30 years, Jesus was quiet, obscure. And we now give children throw them into the world at the age of 13. We are robbing our children of obscurity. The adults come to Jesus for power. The children are quietly just with Jesus. Um, I don't know why, um, but something weird happened to me um, after I graduated from my PhD program. Uh, something messed up in my brain. Um, You keep asking me to come back, and this may be my last time. But something weird happened. Um, And it was epitomized to me. I was invited to come. I was a pastor at the time. I was invited to come to a pastor's gathering. And the, the district supervisor said to me, we want you to come to this pastor's gathering, but I want you to share for five minutes on your research. And I said, what in the world would any pastor care about Pentecostal eco-pneumatology? Econeum- what would any of them care about that? About? And I said, why would you ask me to share on my research for five minutes to a pastor? And he said to me, because the only way I can get you to come to stuff is by inviting you to speak. Ah, Something weird happened to me after I finished. Something weird happened where I began to think that my greatest gift was the greatness that I bore to the kingdom, that I had the gifts. And there's this weird thing that happens in Protestant culture where you need to get invited to stuff. It's all about the invitation. And so everything becomes about curating invited opportunities, roles, speaking engagements, positions. There came a point in my love of Jesus when I stopped following Jesus and I started following Jesus for the ego-enhancing opportunities. I don't know where it was. But I know that as a, as a guy who's done his work, I need to hear Jesus say that my gift to the world is not what I bring to Jesus. It is not the greatness I get from Jesus. It is not the speaking opportunities I get from Jesus. It is not the chances to write articles that get me into the kingdom. It's the simple fact that I just want to come to Jesus. And Lord, I repent. I repent of my arrogance. I don't know what happened. My therapist is making a lot of money, though. <laughs> and thank God for spiritual directors. It's kind of the switch for me. I don't know where it was. It, it was almost the switch from Moses. When God comes to Moses uh, in, in the book of Numbers, and he says to Moses in Numbers, he says, Moses, the people are thirsty. And God says, here's what I want you to do, Moses. I want you to speak to the rock. And so what does Moses do? God says, speak to the rock. He goes to the rock, but rather than speaking to the rock, he strikes it two times. A friend of mine calls that the closest thing we have to biblical fracking. (laughs) He strikes the rock, and water comes out. It's astounding, is it not, that even in Moses' disobedience, God provides. In that moment, why, why does Moses strike the rock? Why not speak to it? Well, of course, this is not the only time in the Bible and in the Old Testament that the people of God get thirsty. Back in Exodus, of course, we know the story that God came to Moses there, and he said to Moses, Moses, I want you to strike the rock. God told him in one place to strike it and speak to it in another. And so why does Moses strike the rock when he's told to speak to it? I think it's really simple. I think Moses, at some moment, went from doing what God said to doing what he knew worked. he knew it worked. Our call as childlike people is not to do what we know works. It is to sit with Jesus and listen to his voice and follow whatever he says. And of course thirdly, Jesus invites us to welcome the child. to to welcome them into our midst. Jesus takes the child, puts them in their midst. That line, in their midst, is, I think, a very important part of the story. Notice that the disciples, though, rebuke the children. The disciples rebuke the children. They don't want the children in their midst. What would it mean to let the children be in your midst? I've always had a lot of frustrations with Freud uh, for many reasons. God be with them. Just so weird. So weird. It was not until this last year that I was with a friend of mine from Abilene Christian University, Richard Beck, who's a psychologist, who studied Freud. I didn't know this. Freud is significant because he was the first psychologist of his generation who actually believed children should be listened to. He spent inordinate amounts of time just listening to children talk about their lives and their dreams. I still have my problems with Freud. But to sit, I was reading a biography, Einstein, he actually, Einstein went out of his way to take all of his theories to children because he said this, if I can't make it make sense to a child, who in the world, what's going to happen with the adults? There is something lost when we take the children out of the room and we put them somewhere else. I understand we need to do it. I understand our churches are big and we need children's ministry. I get it. But I gotta say, our theology gets weird when the kids aren't in the room. When they're not in the midst. There's actually a whole movement called the Child Theology Movement, which is theological reflection that happens only when children are in the room. That doesn't mean your kids are always right. I've got one, I know it's true, they're not. But I gotta say, when you got the kids in the room, they cause our thoughts to come back to earth. In the midst. Children expose our wayward thoughts. I don't know why this is the case, but teenagers have always made me feel uncomfortable, largely because when they look at me, I don't know what they're thinking. I'm terrified by teenagers. What are you th- what's going on in that brain of yours? I don't know, and I need to know, and you won't tell me. Let's say amen. Out of the mouth of babes. Children, in a way, they're threatening. They don't say things we want them to say. And I would even go so far as to say they threaten our power. When my wife had our son, I was shocked at how much jealousy I had that he got her attention more than me. We are all a little bit like Herod who are threatened by the child. There's a little bit in all of us that are threatened. And when we're not threatened by the child, then we do the opposite. Ronald Rollheiser, in one of his books, makes the comment that in a secular world where God is no longer worshipped, we are now left to worship anything else. And he argues, in a world without God, we start worshipping our children. Look at what we do with our kids, how many sports teams we require them to do, the grades we expect of them. We treat them as little deities. We are not called to worship our children. Mary is the only person in human history who can worship her child and not be an idolater. (laughs) We're not called to worship them. But we are called to have them in our midst. Because they expose us. They threaten us. They say things we don't want to hear. They, they, They say the elephant in the room. For the first time in my life at 42, I now am starting to have pastors that are younger than me. And I got to tell you, I don't like it. (laughs) I don't don't like it for one bit. I'm going to tell you why I don't like it, because I have an arrogant spirit that thinks I could do it better. First of all, pray for me. (laughs) And secondarily, I don't like it, because at the end of the day, I feel displaced. I don't like it. I don't like being displaced. I, I've actually learned, I, 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 this was not expected, I was not intending to say this. I don't know if there's anything that reveals our spiritual maturity more than how we handle bad sermons. If you, if you wanna know who the Pharisees are in your church, preach a bad sermon. They will come at you, voraciously. There's no grace. You know what I need? I need to sit at the feet of a child and hear him preach the gospel to me. I need to have the child remind me who the kingdom is, what the kingdom is, who the king is. We are told in Isaiah 11 that this spirit anointed Messiah would come and that the lion and the lamb would be led by a child. Friends, it is very healthy for you and I, to make room in our theological reflections, our hearts, our churches, for children to actually have voices. Can I just say, Sophia, you read the Bible so well today. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Sophia. Let the children come to me. This, uh, this last Christmas was maybe one of the most consequential Christmases of my entire life. Um, I'm 42, and uh, I had some, when I was a kid, uh, I had some very painful experiences as a kid, as we all did, we all had hard stuff. Um, but the combination of some definite, very painful sexual abuse, um, abandonment, trauma, some deep childhood pain that, frankly, for 40 years, I had just not looked into. And I decided for the very first time this last Christmas break to do something really substantive about it. So I hired my therapist for three days to just spend three days with me to get into my story because I knew I couldn't do an hour a week. And so I paid him a lot of money for three days of his time. And I went on a three-day retreat and for the first time in 42 years, I started listening to the child inside of me. And what I experienced was that Jesus, when he says, the, let the children come to me, he is talking about children. He's also talking about children. And that in the hands of Jesus we can be retroactively healed in our deepest child. And driving home, I realized that the whole come to to Jesus thing, it is for the kids. It's also for the kid. And that I and you can today let the child come. I suspect... That for you, there are parts of your childhood that you have not allowed to come to Jesus. And I close by inviting you let the children come to me. Would you stand? Gracious Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, by the healing power of Jesus, would the church be the greatest place in the world for a kid to be loved, nurtured, and cared for? Would our churches be places where little kiddos would find their true identity in Jesus, hear the voice of the Father say, you are my son, you are my daughter, with you I'm well pleased. Would children be safe in our midst? And would we guard them with our lives? And God, in addition, for all of us, would we bear our little child to you, Jesus? And would you touch those stories those wounds in our history we have just died to ignore. And with the healing hand of Jesus, lay his hands on those children. Heal Jesus. Heal Jesus. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Would your will be done. God, we love you and we submit our hearts and our minds to you as your people. In the name of Jesus, amen.